This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. Every day we're bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance, plus technology, politics, so much going on in the world of politics, economics, and it's all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio. And be sure to watch us, too, on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. Well, I got to say, this surprised me, and I actually should go back and check out the most read because, you know, Paul, I always like to check where our daily virus updates on the Bloomberg sit among our most read stories on the Bloomberg. I had to actually go to page the second page ah, <laughs> to find it, it right used to be the top of page one exactly exactly <laughs> which i thought was kind of interesting considering Fatigue. our environment yeah maybe that's it right it and we've got a bunch of headlines out. We've got worldwide cas- uh, cases, uh, I think, surpassing 39 million. The U.S. reporting the most daily infections in two months. Total cases nearing 8 million. So some of the headlines uh, definitely jarring. Let's bring in uh, Dr. Ian Lusbader. We go to him every week for an update, for some clarity and perspective on the virus. He's Clinical Associate Professor of Medicine at NYU Langone Medical Center, and he joins us on the phone in New York. Um, Dr. Lusbader, good to have you back with us. How are you doing this week? Okay. Thank you, Carol and Paul. Hope uh, you guys are doing well. And definitely uh, a very busy news week and certainly on the uh, on the COVID front as well. Well, tell us what you're seeing in terms of the virus. I'm curious. Um, I was actually at a doctor's office today and I'm like, are you guys seeing an uptick? And they're like, nope, we're not yet. But we know that there's pockets around New York City. What are you seeing um, in your, you know, certainly when you're at the hospital or in your private practice? So uh, certainly in private practice, we are seeing a lot of the post-COVID syndrome and a lot of the long haulers. Um, We're not really seeing a big surge in cases, although a lot of those are really more in the uh, the Midwest. I mean, we certainly know nationally our cases are up uh, uh, over 50,000 a day of positive tests. Now, obviously, not everyone is ill and not everyone has uh, does poorly, but certainly the number of cases increasing. And in the New York City area, we certainly have a few pockets where uh, there is uh, kind of a surge in cases. We're not seeing a lot of that in the office yet, at least in uh, with my colleagues. And the hospitals, too, seem to have, you know, not zero cases, but certainly not the surge that we saw previously. So will it come? Hard to know. We're certainly in Europe and around the world, we're seeing really that second or third wave uh, hit. So that is the challenge. So, doctor, at NYU Langone Medical Center, a huge medical center, um, one of the finest, uh, obviously, in New York City, how have you and the hospital staff there kind of starting to prepare yourself for what might be a second wave? That first wave that we all experienced back in March and April was so jarring for the, finan- for the uh, medical facilities. What changes have been made? Well, it's definitely a challenge because we're now beginning to really see over the last month or so all of those patients that were afraid to come in. So elective surgery and colonoscopies and stress tests and, uh, you know, all of that general medical care has really surged to pre-COVID levels, uh, which is good news. People are getting taken care of. Everyone for certain, certainly um, 
whether it's surgery or, or some cases, uh, they get swabbed to make sure uh, everyone, all the patients are in a COVID-free zone. But there's certainly awareness uh, among hospital leadership that uh, a similar strategy may have to be uh, implemented where the hospital has more beds and more areas uh, available if uh, if those COVID patients come back. And certainly in terms of treatment, it's a very dynamic area. There were just some studies that really questioned how effective remdesivir is. Um, uh, there was a WHO study, and, and so that is part of the standard cocktail. Uh, President Trump got that. Uh, certainly alone, that may not be uh, that effective. So it's really a dynamic landscape where we're trying a number of things and, and things are not completely proven. But, you know, there's good news as well. Pfizer uh, coming to the end of their phase three study and uh, may be able to get uh, vaccine approval. We're not hearing a lot of complications uh, from the vaccines. Now, again, they don't publicize all of that. Uh, eventually, that will all have to go through the FDA. But we're not hearing a lot of problems. So I'm encouraged by the vaccine, although it certainly is going to be months away before everyone starts getting it. Right, especially when you think about the ramp up, right? Like we've, we've had some stories on the Bloomberg just now. States are figuring out, like there isn't one, one version where the federal government says, hey guys, here's how we're going to roll out the vaccine. It's states are kind of scrambling to figure out how to do it. Right. Well, first, you know, they have to be approved and FDA, right. you know, approved and, and the data reviewed. And, uh, you know, there's some concern. Are they really rushing it? And, and this is a record time uh, because it's not even a year. It's amazing. You know, February, March is when the first cases came out. And we're now in, you know, October. So it is really quite amazing to have developed it. And with unique technology, that messenger RNA, mm -hmm. you know, Moderna, Pfizer, uh, I mean, there are a variety of techniques. And all of them uh, are really much faster than the traditional methods. And it's amazing to be, you know, in these phase three studies, which is really sort of the uh, before approval and release. And I think it's encouraging if you have 30,000, 40,000 patients, uh, granted it's not millions or hundreds of millions, but if we're not really seeing significant side effects, I think that that's encouraging. So I do want to ask you, Ian, you know, so goes Europe, does so go the United States. And I ask that because I've been talking with some folks over in Asia and they're like, if you want clues of kind of maybe what happens next for you in the U.S., just look at what's going on in Asia. But we know it's not apples to apples, whether it's Asia in the U.S. or Europe in the U.S. So when we see those rising numbers in Europe, what should we take from that potentially uh, as U.S. citizens? Or nothing, maybe. You know, I, I agree with you. I think globally we're certainly seeing um, uh, another wave and uh, in South America and certainly in Europe, France, uh, almost declaring a state of emergency or the things borderline and both due to the seasonal uh, factors as the weather gets cooler there's less outdoor distancing there's more indoor meeting uh, and so it's not uncommon we saw this in you know 1918 with various waves of the uh, h1n1 uh, spanish flu well so, i did not see that at 1918 <laughs> and i know you did not and i know paul did collective not. memory uh, <laughs> Right. So uh, so it, it and without a vaccine and without effective treatment, it's not totally shocking to see that it is a little hard to uh, explain country by country variations. Now, part of that is habits and uh, mask wearing and social distancing. Part of it may also relate to underlying um, health. Uh, in other words, uh, there are some countries that are thinner, healthier. And we do know that 
diabetes, high blood pressure, elevated weight. And unfortunately, in the United States, we have an epidemic of obesity. We have an epidemic of type 2 diabetes. We have an epidemic um, of a lot of those health issues. Yeah. And that makes us more vulnerable to the virus. So when, when people who are not in, in optimal health get uh, exposed to the virus, higher uh, complication rates, higher hospitalizations, and higher death rates. So individually, we need to take care of ourselves and, and do smart things like uh, mask wearing. I certainly agree. I think we, we have a good consensus. Alone, that's probably not enough. And certainly, people need to get their diseases under control, better diet, lose weight. Exercise should, more regularly. Should we make sure we get like the the normal flu shot, things like that, just to make sure we're not kind of you know more vulnerable Perfect. in terms of uh, health? Yeah, a hundred percent, Carol. As usual, you're you're on the case, and uh, yeah, absolutely. You want to minimize comorbidities, or the worst thing would be getting flu and COVID. And most yeah. uh, we think that that double virus hit would have a much higher uh, morbidity and mortality. So while we're waiting for approval of monoclonal antibodies, and while we're waiting approval for messenger RNA and other um, vaccines, we have to be very vigilant, you know, with mask wearing and hand washing. And and some people feel, Tony Fauci, uh, vitamin D supplementation. You don't want to take too much. You don't want to take too little. You know, you can find your find your levels. And of course, diet, exercise, so uh, weight loss. Uh, we've seen a lot of uh, increased in weight by people staying indoors and eating poorly and gaining weight. So, you know, we have to take individual control while we're waiting for some technologic breakthroughs, which I think are coming. I mean, yep. they're, they're, they're here in a few months. All right, doctor, let's go there. Vaccines, we got a lot of companies working on them. Let's say we do, in fact, get some vaccines, you know, late this year, maybe first half of next year. What are your patients telling you about their willingness to take a vaccine? Yeah. Uh, an another good question. Uh, certainly all the healthcare professionals I speak to, they, they are ready to take those vaccines. I'm certainly ready to do that because we're exposed every day. Uh, the patients really are, some of them are afraid that we've rushed this. Uh, some of them are afraid to take any vaccine, including what we recommend, you know, tetanus, pneumonia, right. shingles vaccine. So there are some, uh, not anti-vaxxers, but people who are a little afraid to, you know, to take vaccines. So it may be a challenge to get everybody on board with a COVID vaccine. And if only a small percentage of people take it, it's obviously going to be less effective. So I think... If the first wave of people, perhaps healthcare professionals and or elderly people in nursing homes take it and they seem to do well, hopefully that will encourage everyone yeah. uh, to line up and get on board. Ian, really quickly, 25 seconds. Are you surprised or comforted by New York schools that it seems to be for the most part going fairly well? Just yes, I, I think there are a lot of reasons to get back. I think if it's done carefully, uh, it should be successful. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio. So, Paul, kind of amazing that we're just 17 days to go. I was going to ask you, because you're, you're always good with how many days left. 17 days. I'm just I've got a clock down. up on my computer. <laughs> I'm serious. I'm serious. Yeah, well, good for you. That's what we need. I mean, and, and last night was just 
compelling, you know, the dueling uh, yeah. town halls, uh, different networks, just uh, crazy. Yeah, and it's actually 17 days, 10 hours, 11 minutes, and 29 <laughs> okay. seconds. That's how, how much, it's like the debt clock that we used to yes. see, and I think it's still in New York City. All right, let's get to it with Bloomberg News White House correspondent Josh Wingrove. He's on the phone, um, and we were talking about your story on the Bloomberg, the most read uh, on the past, uh, I think, eight hours, Josh, about... Oh, that's the... good news. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. well hope done. You, hope, hope your editors are listening. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. it talks about the president and how he's undercutting the campaign. Yeah, I mean, this is this is just the, the the yeah. You take the good and the bad if you work for Donald Trump, you know. So yeah, all these polls are showing him trailing. It's narrower in the swing states, but pretty much not a lot of signs of hope. And seniors and suburban women are two groups that really stick out. Trump won seniors in 2016, crucial, particularly for states like you know Florida, Arizona, that kind of thing. And now uh, he's losing to Biden by about the same margin. A huge swing among uh, the senior vote. They're targeting ads at seniors, but uh, and he's as I speak, President Trump is giving an address in Florida aimed uh, at seniors in particular. But uh, that, with that, and with women, he tends to sort of counteract the message that his campaign is giving. In other words, you know, he makes fun of Biden for you know belonging in a nursing home while at the same time trying to convince seniors to vote for him. And uh, with women, he sort of has put these please literally said this week, suburban women, will you please like me? <laughs> uh, as, as these gender gaps just get wider uh, w- w- with Biden. So, you know, the, the, the Trump campaign, they're trying to catch up. If you believe these polls are anything close to the sort of 10.9 point, 12 point gap range, then you, re- then you acknowledge they've got some catching up to do. And they're trying to do this, but uh, they kind of got to work with what the president's willing to give them. Yeah, Josh, it seems, you know, his campaign strategy seems to be these Make America Great rallies. But as I look at these rallies on TV, everybody's got the hat on. Um, It seems like there's not too many undecideds uh, that are being impacted by his strategy here in these last 17 days. It seems like it's just kind of playing to his base, and he's already got those folks. There's a preaching to the choir risk, for sure. And I think it's a little unclear on how big that is. The campaign says they get a lot of data from this stuff, right? Like folks sign up for tickets, they get their cell phone number. A lot of these folks didn't vote in 2016. Some of them are independents, some of them are Democrats. So the campaign says, look, these rallies, A, Trump likes them, and having Donald Trump in good mood is crucial if you work for the Trump campaign. Uh, but B, you know, it's, it's about voter identification to a certain extent. So that's how they're doing it. But look, you know, like Donald Trump's own approval rating is pretty locked in as well. You know, but they're not really backing off on him. In fact, he's coming out every day, it seems, with a rally or two rallies. He'll be in Georgia uh, later tonight uh, every day. You know, it's just like more Trump all the time. Uh, so, you know, they're, if they're going to turn this around, they're banking that it's Donald Trump himself who will be able to do it. And, you know, there's there's not a lot of evidence in the polls that that kind of path will work. And there are early signs that turnout is going to spike. I think I think that was yeah. concerning to the Trump camp. You know, if turnout really soars, that, 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 that will, I don't think will be good news for, for Republicans. Yeah. I mean, we've been all talking all day on Bloomberg that, you know, I think one of the stories I read um, or and yours, too, I think, you know, more than 21 million Americans already participating yeah. in early voting. I mean, that's a that's a pretty big number. Two quick questions. Can can either candidate win without Florida? Uh, Trump, technically, yes, but basically uh, Trump needs Florida a lot more than Biden does. Biden doesn't really need Florida at all. 
it'd be nice to have, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. Uh, but if Biden is winning Florida, we're probably looking at a blowout. Whereas Trump needs Florida and then some. Uh, so, so you know, it's a, it's a very competitive state. But it really, you know, they just announced that President Barack Obama is a campaign in Pennsylvania. That looks to be the real sort of tipping point state. Biden is leading in Michigan, leading in Wisconsin. If he wins those and takes Pennsylvania, that'll probably do it. But there's other paths to get there uh, as well. And we'll see, for instance, the president's going to go to Michigan and Wisconsin this weekend, uh, Arizona and Nevada as well. And what about when it comes to early polling? Does that usually go more in favor? I know we talked about this with Josh Green, more in favor of Democrats versus Republicans, or is there something different this time around? We've seen the lines. Yeah, yeah. I mean, two things. uh, So, you know, I wrote about this morning how Trump, the notion of losing to Biden looks to irk Trump, right? It bothers him that he could lose to Joe Biden. And that's starting to work its way into his speeches these last few days. The other thing that's worked its way in is he started talking about a red wave. He thinks that, you know, come voting day, Republicans are going to show up in such numbers that they're going to really swamp the the, the, the high numbers uh, an advanced turnout. And that, that speaks to the reality, which is that Democrats are far likelier to vote in advance, either in person advance or by mail, than Republicans are. Uh, and Republicans, conversely, are far more likely to vote uh, on the day of and show up in person. And so, you know, this is important to bear in mind as we prepare for the night of November 3rd and the morning of November 4th and maybe the night of November 4th uh, because this could take a while. Every state treats advance votes a little differently. Some are allowed to count them in advance. Some are not. We are seeing blowout numbers in advance voter turnout uh, in a lot of states right now. Of course, the pandemic is playing a role in that. Hey, Josh, what do we know about the future of any debates between now and Election Day? We know, well, they have one more scheduled for next Thursday, six nights from now. That'll be the last one. You know, they uh, tried. The Trump campaign wanted to push the debate that was supposed to be last night in its format. Uh, uh, excuse me, the Biden campaign wanted to push it till next week uh, so they could do that. Uh, the Trump campaign wanted to push both of them a week. Biden campaign said no. You know, a bit of back and forth on that. That's why you had those dueling events last night. So it really all comes down to next week. You know, traditionally, it's the people that are trailing campaigns that need debate to catch up, right? You know, the, the leader gets the, the luxury of autopilot. Right. And so we'll see what Donald Trump gets uh, on, on that, of course. We'll see. I don't know. I, I, I'm not looking more than a day in advance at this stage. <laughs> it seems, seems like things are so fast moving in some ways. Hey, just got about a minute left here, Josh, or about 45 seconds. Did either mm. one come out ahead or gain something from mm. last night? Um, I think that Donald Trump's answers on QAnon are going to resonate a bit, you know, not refusing to disavow it. But anything less than, you know, a, a gain or a good night for Trump is a win for Biden. I think we're in that range, you know. We talked about not a lot of undecided voters. People have made up their mind. You sort of love the president or you don't love him at this point. Uh, uh, there's not a lot of evidence out there even in, early, in the early ratings or the sort of early reviews that suggest Trump hit a home run. And anything that did a home run for Trump is probably bad news for him because he needs to catch up. I feel like I'm watching like some great movie, you know, political movie, <laughs> you know, fiction. And then I'm like, no, 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 this is our no, world. This is, this is our life. <laughs> it's our reality, right? Yes. Um, Josh, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Josh thank Wingrove, you. he's thank Bloomberg you. News Anytime. White House correspondent. Definitely check out all of his work on Bloomberg. You can find him at Josh underscore Wingrove. Um, just kind of wild stuff, Paul. 
Yeah, wild stuff. And again, 17 days uh, to the election. I wonder if we're going to have to start counting down also to the Electoral College, you know, certifying uh, this thing. I see that number out there as well. Yeah. Hopefully this will be a clear enough decision one way or the other on, you know, yeah. on or about election night and the country can uh, begin to move forward. It's a civics course we're all going to get. Yes. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio. When you talk to technology investors, two themes come up it just seems time and time again one is the cloud everything's going to the cloud and that's going to drive spending for the next gajillion years and the second one is 5g how this is the future of wireless even apple it got into the act this uh week launching its iphone 12 with its 5g capabilities let's get a sense of what this really means and there's nobody better than craig moffett founding partner and senior analyst at Moffat Nathanson. And if you want to know anything that's going on in the TMT space, you have to get the research from Moffat Nathanson. He joins us on the phone from New York. Craig, thanks so much for joining us here. What did you make of Apple, the iPhone 12, and just kind of 5G in general? First of all, thank you for having me back on, Paul. It's good to talk to you again. Uh, you know, I would say this. I would say that, if anything, um, the Apple 5G event sort of has been a little bit of an uncomfortable reminder for everybody that 5G is not really fully baked yet. Um, and it, the the announcement has sort of forced everybody to come to grips with the idea that, um, that right now um, 5G is still very much um, a, a year or so away. And and I thought there were all kinds of, of cues about that in the in the Apple launch. So is it crazy? Um, hi, Craig, and I hope you're doing well. I do hey, want. Carol. I do wonder. You know, my husband was up at eight a.m. or before that. You know, because he wanted to order his new Apple <laughs> iPhone. I swear to God, and he's oh, he boy. stayed up till three in the morning. You know, because when they open it all up, and he's going to order my new phone when it comes out. I think in a week or two. And so, are we crazy? We've been kind of waiting for this. Are we crazy because five G isn't completely built out here? Well, if if five G is the reason that you're getting a new phone, then yes, that's not. That's crazy. Um, it's just not ready yet. <laughs> Thank you very there are, much. There are other reasons to get new phones, and if, if you like the, the new camera and that sort of thing. Um, and, and look, handset cycles have been lengthening for a long time, so there are an awful lot of old phones out there that need replacement anyway. But 5G as a rationale, it just isn't very compelling. I mean, here, here's the problem. And, and sorry if this is a little bit technical, but... <laughs> we love technical. If you deploy 5G on, um, on low-frequency spectrum to get the coverage of the country, it's no faster than 4G. If you deploy it in very high-frequency spectrum and big-spectrum blocks, it's very, very fast. They demoed that with Verizon, but it's hardly ever available. It's only available in, in something like 1% of the, the time that you're going to be on your phone because the propagation distances of those spectrum bands are so short that they're only really usable in exceptionally dense cities and inside shopping malls and airports and, and arenas and stadiums and all the places where nobody is anymore because of COVID. Um, and so the, the value proposition right now just isn't there yet. You're going to end up with a phone that is essentially uh, has a little 5G light on it runs at about the same speed as 4G and drains your battery faster for the trouble. <laughs> um, and that's not going to be compelling for very many people. So 
Um, again, there may be other good reasons why you want to get a new phone, um, right. and the new iPhones are great looking, but then maybe you like the, the flat edges instead of the curved edges, but, but it's not going to be because of 5G yet. All right, so Craig, given that, I'm surprised, or are you surprised, that Apple rolled it out now as opposed to waiting? Typically, their strategy has been, hey, we don't need to be the first or even the second. We'll be there when there's a market. Well, to be fair, they've already waited. Samsung has had 5G phones out for more than a year. And, and also remember that this is not just a U.S. story. This is also a global story. Um, and 5G is a little bit further along in China and Korea and Japan uh, using the same chipsets, by and large. So um, although, interestingly, the U.S. chips, the U.S. Uh, Apple devices are the only ones that will actually support millimeter wave spectrum. Um, it, and, and that's a real compromise. Um, it gives you those blindingly fast speeds, but um, it's, again, not available much of anywhere except um, a little bit of New York and a handful of other very dense cities um, in the U.S. But, again, drains your battery so, so fast, generates a lot of heat. Um, and so they've decided not even to, not even put that in the, the handsets that they're making for overseas markets. All right, you popped my bubble. And I've got to say, <laughs> Mark Gurman was also writing, our Mark Gurman here at Bloomberg wrote about, you know, Apple getting ready to launch. And then we've got this unready U.S. market. So Verizon, AT&T, T-Mobile. So as we're waiting for them to kind of really roll it out in a big way, 5G, when will they? What are we all waiting for? Is it just they don't want to make the investment yet? What's holding it up? Well, there's a couple of things, but I said a minute ago, low-frequency spectrum for broad coverage, um, but not high speed. Right. High-frequency spectrum for high speed, but, but insufficient coverage. That obviously leaves the broad middle, and the broad middle, predictably, is mid-band spectrum. Um, right now, T-Mobile has a huge advantage and head start in that they have a very large block of, of mid-band spectrum that they acquired in the Sprint acquisition. In fact, you can make a good case that's really the whole reason they bought Sprint was to get that spectrum. Um, that will be the support for the first really credible 5G network in the United States, and T-Mobile will have a big advantage that could well last for years. Verizon will probably catch up um, at least to a degree when they buy a big chunk of spectrum Later this year, everyone seems to, to be quite certain that they will buy what's called C-band spectrum, which is going to be auctioned by the FCC in mm -hmm. December. Um, but that will take them a couple of years before they get it and then fully deploy it. And even then, it's probably not going to have quite the same reach and coverage that T-Mobile will enjoy. And the real challenge is going to be AT&T. Right. AT&T's balance sheet is in so much trouble that it's just not clear they have the money to be able to buy a significant amount of spectrum or to build it out at the pace that's going to be required to keep pace with Verizon and AT&T, uh, Verizon and T-Mobile. Craig, we talked about AT&T a little bit earlier in, in the earlier segment. When I think about AT&T now, unfortunately, what I think about is their balance sheet here. So, you know, my senses, and you, and you noted that as well, you know, so as I look at their business, I kind of got to start thinking about some asset disposals to try to pay down my balance sheet. And the thing that jumps at me is DirecTV. Can they ever sell this thing and get any remote value out of it? Not enough value that it's going to make a dent in their balance sheet. You know, that, that, that's really the problem, right? I mean, they, they bought the business for all in, including the debt that they took on, for $69 billion. Mm -hmm. And 
New York Post reported last week that they're getting offers just four years or five years later for um, between 15 and $16 billion. Wow. Um, and uh, so just a massive destruction of value. And here's the problem. It still probably does something like $5 billion of EBITDA. Hmm. So you're talking about a valuation that's in the range of three and a half times. That's their leverage. Remember, their, their leverage on the balance sheet looks like it's 2.6 2. 6 times um, uh, cash flow. But in fact, it's, it's higher than that because they have all those operating leases that the rating agencies count as debt. Those are the operating leases for all the cell towers that they've got. Um, and then you also have unfunded, ba- uh, unfunded pension obligations and that sort of thing. So you're really talking about a company that's levered three and a half times, way outside the norm for investment-grade credit. And you can't sell an asset at three and a half times and delever. It's, it leaves you exactly where you started. Um, and and it, it's a real problem for them because um, if they can't find something to sell, it's not clear they have the headroom in the balance sheet to buy Spectrum that they really need. So they're in, they're in a very real bind here. And you can see them trying to, to sell anything that isn't nailed down right now. They're, they're trying to sell DirecTV. They're trying to sell the... Warner Brothers Entertainment Business, which is the video game unit, small inside of Warner Brothers. There's there's been some talk they might try to sell Cartoon Network from inside of Turner. Um, they're trying to shop the DirecTV Latin America business. Um, they haven't been able to find any buyers for that. They're trying to sell their advanced advertising business. They haven't been able to find any buyers for that. And it's it, they're clearly just desperately trying to raise cash. Um, one argument is they're trying to do it to prepare for the Spectrum auction. Another is that the rating agencies may already be breathing down their neck and saying you've got to do something to delever this balance sheet faster. So, Craig, what does AT&T want to be when it grows up? And I just think about all of the deals that it's done, DirecTV, Time Warner, TCI. I mean, I just think about, you know, the failed purchase of T-Mobile. Um, they have done so many di- big things. You have activist investors, certainly. We saw that last year with Elliott Management. I mean, what do they need to be? What should they be in your view? Well, I think they're going to have to pair back eventually to be a communications business again. Um, but it's breathtaking just how quickly this has happened, right? I mean, remember, they mm-hmm. were, it's, they've owned Time Warner for less than two years. Um, and and already they're they're looking at unwinding the whole strategy that that put the company together. You know, I think Carol, you put your finger on it when you mentioned T-Mobile. They tried to buy T-Mobile in 2011, and that would have been a perfectly rational strategy. There would have been lots of synergies. It would have been horizontal expansion in the U.S. telecom market. Everything we've heard since 2011 said the DOJ told them not only can you not do this deal, remember that deal was blocked by the Department of Justice and never happened, mm-hmm. um, but, but you can't really buy any more telecom in the United States. You're as big as we're going to let you get in telecom. And so they were faced from 2011 with a question, which is, so do you want to go outside the United States and buy telecom in Europe or the rest of the world? Or do you want to buy something non-telecom in the U.S.? And they felt like they needed to do a deal to sustain the dividend. They ultimately chose B, that is, to buy something that was essentially unrelated in the United States, um, direct TV. And then they tried to spin a story around it to, to pretend that it was a strategic acquisition. It really wasn't. And when, when you start strategy by saying, what can we buy and then how do we justify it, 
as opposed to saying, what are the, the assets that we need and how do we get them? Mm-hmm. Um, you're starting in the wrong place and it's never going to end well. And I think almost immediately DirecTV went pear-shaped. Um, they should have known it was going to go pear-shaped. Um, and, and because of the, the burden of the dividend, they felt like they had to double down and buy something else um, in order to keep the, the free cash flow sufficient to fund the dividend. And they bought Time Warner. And in retrospect, Time Warner had a lot of the same problems as DirecTV. It was a business that was at its at the very tail end of its life, at least for the Turner networks. Right. Remember, HBO gets all the attention. The movie studio gets a lot of attention. But the bulk of what they bought is cable networks. Um, and they're at the tail end of their useful life and they're starting a secular decline, just like DirecTV was when they bought it. Um, And so now they're suffering from the same problem of this not only cyclical but secular decline. We could continue on and on. Um, So come back, I hope, and I love these deep dives. I know Paul does too. So thank you so much for it, Craig, and I hope you and your family are doing well amid this crazy time. Craig Moffitt, uh, founder and senior analyst at Moffitt Nathanson, on the phone in New York City. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk the music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, just got about 11 minutes left in today's trading session, getting ready to wrap up the trading day and also, of course, the trading week. Back with us in our time for the drive to the close is Michael Sheldon, Executive Director and Chief Investment Officer at RDM Financial Group, based in Westport, Connecticut. And that's where he joins us on the phone. How are you? Hi, Carol. Nice to see you. Um, We're still... uh working on the markets, looking ahead, and uh, building client portfolios. We're still trying to figure everything out. And uh, I think, uh, you know, it's been an interesting summer. It's been an interesting 2020. Yeah. <laughs> and we're not think, done uh, yet. We no, still have an election not. to get through. <laughs> oh, a little thing called the election. <laughs> I think, uh, you know, from our perspective, I think over the near term, we could very well see some added volatility in the markets. But I think over the intermediate term, we're probably in the early stages of a new economic cycle. And I think one thing that's important for investors to realize is that economic expansions typically last a number of years as opposed to just a number of months. If you go back to, for example, when, when the, uh, the government started tracking GDP data in the late 1940s, the average U.S. economic expansion has been almost six years, while, the contra- while contractions have been about three months. So you have to sort of take an intermediate to longer-term viewpoint um, we are constructive on the markets, but certainly there are a lot of companies and industries that have been left behind, and only 52% of all the workers that were let go have been rehired. So it's sort of a two-speed recovery at this point. So, Michael, what are some of the sectors, as you're constructing your portfolio, you're taking the outlook, call it intermediate to longer term, what are some of the sectors? Are you brave enough to say, I can look towards the other side of this and maybe take a look at some of those sectors that are fundamentally good businesses, uh, like it's leisure or travel, but have been knocked down because of this pandemic? Well, for the individual stocks that we purchase, we really focus on companies with strong balance sheets, industry leaders, companies with uh, good outlooks. 
in terms of our portfolio right now, the way we're sort of thinking about things is we have a barbell approach. So on the one side, you need to have some growth in your portfolio to achieve the, the long-term investment goals to meet your horizon. So we own some technology. We have some of the stocks in the communication services industry as well. That's sort of an interesting sector. It's a mix, but we own some growth there. On the other side, we own some companies in the consumer discretionary area as well as some industrials uh, because we also think we're in the early stages of an economic expansion. And then sort of in the middle, we own some healthcare stocks. We have exposure to healthcare. That's sort of our GARP sector or growth at a reasonable price. You don't hear that term that often no. anymore. I, mean, I was just saying that to somebody. It's just kind of, you're either, Carol, you're either in the big growth camp or right. you're buying deep cyclicals. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, it's interesting that you say that. You sound rather optimistic, Michael. And that's well, not allowed on the show. No. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. We're, no, no. We like optimism. I, I'd, say, I'd say we're constructive, but, but it is yeah. important to point out that, again, we've only recovered 52% of all the jobs lost. When you look at last well, week's weekly jobless claims, that actually went in the wrong direction, and it came out closer to 900,000. I think next week's weekly jobs numbers will be really important. Also, there's a lot of housing data, which has been positive. But also next week, investors should keep an eye on the leading economic index on Thursday, because that tends to forecast the direction of the economy over the next 6 to 12 months. And a lot of data recently has had a big jump after a, we had a really big decline in the economy in the second quarter. Now we've had a really big bounce back in the third quarter. Our thinking is that some of this data will start to even out a little bit. And we see better times ahead over the next 12 to 24 months. But we think it's, it's going to be a bumpy ride as, for some parts of the economy as we move forward. Can we do it without stimulus or another round of stimulus? You see the debate, the back and forth, and it's not only just over the size. At this point, there's a lot of Republicans and maybe some others that think we don't really need anything. Yeah, I think we're going to get some stimulus no matter who the next president is. But at this point, it seems more likely that it will be in 2021 as opposed to this year. You know, I think in terms of the market itself, the two big supporting factors for the market right now are stimulus talks which, again, it seems like this is more of a 2021 issue, but we will likely get some stimulus next year and hopes of a vaccine, which we have a number of different trials and phase three trials right now, and it seems like we're likely to get a vaccine. Plus, you combine that with the fact, again, that we're probably in the early stages of an economic cycle, which typically lasts a number of years as opposed to a number of weeks or months. So how are you factoring in, if at all, again, it sounds like you're uh, focused on that, intermediate to longer term approach. But Joe Biden seems to be pretty strong in the polls, maybe even strong enough to bring the Senate along with him. Would that change your calculus at all? Yeah, that's definitely a risk to the to the story. I think one of the issues with Joe Biden, of course, on the one hand, he's talked about raising taxes, which you never really want to raise taxes, especially during a during a, an economic recovery when things are not at full speed. On the other hand, he's also talked about things like infrastructure spending and manufacturing jobs. So, and, and we're going to likely get some fiscal spending and spending on areas which could benefit companies and new companies and industries, which will open up new opportunities. So it's sort of a mixed bag, but our thinking right now is that the stimulus spending will probably come in the first half of his term. And he's, while he's certainly talked about raising taxes, it's possible that if the economy is not on stable or strong footing, he may delay that a little bit until the economy gets on better footing and we start to see a stronger recovery. So, but that is something that we'll certainly have to monitor. Where don't you want to be in this market environment right now, Michael? Well, I think over the past 10 years or so, we've been overweight growth versus value. 
and we've been overweight the U.S. versus foreign, and that's worked out pretty well. At some point, these things tend to go in cycles, so we're still keeping those overweights right now, but at some point, we probably will rotate into those areas of the market that haven't participated. So, for example, adding maybe a little bit to foreign, moving more to the middle between growth and value, and picking up more in some of the beaten-down cyclical stocks or areas of the market that haven't quite participated uh, but would participate if there's a more robust, sustained economic recovery. And, Michael, just about 30 seconds, is it too early to look at small caps? Well, right now it's interesting. More than 40% of the small cap market actually doesn't make money right now. So um, <laughs> those are more of a risk-on sort of trade. So if there is a more robust economic recovery, then small caps should participate and maybe even lead for a period of time. But, but you have to keep in mind that a lot of those don't make money right now, so they are more volatile um, depending on your outlook for the market. All right, we're going to leave it on that note. Michael, good to check in with you. Have a great weekend. Uh, Michael Sheldon, Executive Director and Chief Investment Officer at RDM Financial Group. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or at Bloomberg.com. And be sure to check out our daily radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio. And be sure to watch us, too, on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News.